What do Rob Reiner, Paul Westerberg, and Chauncey Billups have in common? Apart from being central subjects of our episode today, I'm not really sure, but it sounds kinky. We're talking underrated streaks on Over Under Fair. And welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Over Under Fair, your final word in pop culture relevance. I am Dave Roldan, your host. I am excited. I will only talk like this the whole episode. Roger, you are also here. I am very excited for this episode. (laughs) Give me some more. And in the studio, for the first time on this show, I believe, uh, co-owner and editor-in-chief of SportsRadioDetroit.com and the voice of Livonia Stevenson Hockey, Ben Sloggy. Ben, how you doing? I am hyped. No, everybody is excited. That's the kind of energy we bring to over under fair. It also just could be because we're all caffeinated. That's I definitely am. I cracked a tall boy a surge before I walked in the studio today. Nice. I'm living that '90s life wearing an NWO t-shirt. You know me. So yeah, uh, but that's not what we're here to discuss. Surprisingly, since the '90s is kind of what we discuss a lot, but they will come up as some of this does happen in the '90s. At least for me, um, we are doing. Something of a abstract concept today. We do that from time to time. Uh, I wanted to talk about streaks. So the Patriots have won another Super Bowl. Congratulations. Golf clap to the Patriots. And uh, they're a dynasty, that's fair to say. And I, it got me to thinking about things in that, in that vein. Of like, We know that there is established runs of greatness for things in sports and music and film. But what about streaks that people don't talk about as much? Like, I guess you could say underrated streaks see i did that i worked that into the show title (laughs) so i'm a professional obviously um so yeah we got together and we kind of hashed it out and we thought like what are some things in pop culture that are sustained eras of greatness that people don't discuss as much i'm I'm, that's that's what we talked about roger that's how we that's how we settled on this that's correct yeah okay so we got a couple of different things today we're you know we don't do a lot of sports on here but sports are germane to streaks it's kind of like a big thing of how streaks are you know popularized and uh, we're going to go around, we're each going to present our topic and then kind of discuss it in full, and you'll get a better idea of what it is I'm talking about. And I don't want to spoil what we're talking about specifically, because we're just going to talk about it specifically. So, Roger, I think we'll start with you, uh, and then, you know, we'll talk about what you have, and we'll kind of compare that to other, maybe more notable streaks. That's why these streaks are underrated, because they aren't discussed as frequently. So, Roger, starting with you, what is your underrated streak? My underrated streak would be... It happens to be from uh, one of my favorite bands of all time, and that is The Replacements. And that is the streak of good albums in terms of just production, sound, and how it's just an arc of a band that is not often talked about. In a time, in a period of time in the 80s where that was kind of hard to do, and I want to talk about that because I think it's criminally underrated. Specifically, like, in rock. Like, right. that is definitely... I 100% agree with you. This is definitely an underrated streak of output. Yes, and now uh, that would start with 1984's Let It Be, uh, 1985's Tim, and 1987's Please to Meet Me, which is a... What's interesting about that whole progression, too, and well, I'll get more into it, too, is just the change... There's a lot of changes that were happening, not only in the terms of the decade, but within the band, too, and so... 
I thought the replacements did a good job with that. Okay. So, yeah, that's, that's good. So so we're starting with Let It Be was the first record? Yeah, we're yeah? going to start with Let It Be, which came out, uh, actually it came out October of 1984. So a bit of context. I'm I'm a fan of the replacements. Like, I'm, you know, casual. I'm And I can't in any way say that I love them the way that you do. I know they're one of your favorite bands. So as a as a casual fan of this band... What about this streak is underrated compared to like the contemporary rock of that time? Well, the reason why it's underrated is because you look at so if you look at bands of contemporary rock in that in that re- regard at regard in regard at that time is a lot of those bands started to in order to survive the MTV and to make money they went to synth they went to cheaper production. So, for example, like another favorite band of mine, which is contradictory to the replacements, really is the Police. So the police have... Oh, yeah, very much so, yeah. Yeah, so the reason... I mean, the police from Regatta de Blanca, Regatta de Moya, um, Ghost in the Machine, to Synchronized City 2, there's an evolution of them trying to be posers as punk to that new wave sound, quote-unquote. So, and they were very successful. They're a band that you people talk about all the time. Like, yeah. That's, that's, uh, an, that's an all-time band. Yeah, and everybody talks about their streak of albums and what have you. Uh, another band that would put in that same kind of go- category in that same regard is U2. U2 started off with... Oh, yeah. With, That's a good example. Um, and U2 kind of progressed and changed their sound. Everybody talks about the difference between War to the Joshua Tree to Rattle and Hum, which I think is one of those overrated live albums of all time. Oh, yeah. oh Rattle and Hum's terrible. Yeah, Rattle, yeah, it's it's terrible. Um, and then another band in that same kind of category a little bit, but they're in the same path. And I can even make a case for them as REM. REM and them, and REM is part of the replacement's journey, which we'll get to a little okay. bit later. So, but in terms of a, another band in that same kind of like rock, quote-unquote, uh, genre too, it's, you know, in terms of even, because that, the replacements were in a in an environment that didn't really exist. I mean, you couldn't really classify them per se as... Like a like you know the rock period at that time until maybe- right they were kind of divorced from like a greater rock scene yeah like Minnesota had its own weird thing going on over yeah. there with like them and you know Husker Du yeah. and uh, Soul Asylum like they had a whole scene that kind of existed apart from general rock like critics might have known a bit more about it but the general public was kind of ignorant to rock in the eighties of that stripe like it was kind of an it was a more underground sort of thing yeah and like the yeah. same thing with like it was the seattle scene before the seattle scene i dare i say sure it because- yeah i mean it, it yeah they're they're two they're two sides of a similar coin yeah absolutely <laughs> and so uh but uh no the, the replacements i mean there another band like i'll give another example of like bands that are contemporary they're popular time Biggest band of that year, the two biggest bands of 1984 were Greg Kinn and the Romantics. No love for Van Halen? I mean, Van Halen, excuse me, Van Halen, Van Halen, Van Halen. So, sure. But, what but that's think, what we're up against. Yeah. Like, those are, that's, that's what we're comparing this to. Like, bands like Greg Kinn and Van Halen. Yeah. Like, that's, that's what's popular, and the replacements are the replacements. So, yeah, let's yeah. break into the music a bit then. Yeah, yeah. So, so we start with 1984's Let It Be. And so this is an album that came out right after Hootenanny. Hootenanny was them trying to still... I didn't put that in, in part of the streak only because it was still like a hodgepodge. It was them figuring out their sound a little bit. Where Paul Westenberg, who is the lead singer for people out there who don't know, um, was kind of figuring out their sound from this weird transition of punk, and that came out in 1983. But I reason why I started with Let It Be because considered by many, it's a master. Considered a quote unquote master. It is, yeah. By like comparison to everything that preceded it, it is like. It is a band finding their voice. Right, exactly. Yeah. And this is them discovering the replacement sound. And the first song off that track, or off the album, I Will Dare, has Peter Buck from R.E.M. Oh, yeah. With, yeah, with the guitar in it. 
He's got the little instrumental. I did not know that. Yes, and um, they partied a lot. They were they were running buddies. But okay, uh, that's but, cool. Another story for another day. But uh, that song is a great first track. It gets you going. Kind of gets it like especially because the the guitar for that time with Peter Buck doing that uh, instrumentation like the in the middle during that chorus part or the middle of the part like. Nothing like that at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I forgot the exact name of the guitar they used in it, but uh, no. And that was a good first track. And then you kind of where it's just kind of even my favorite thing is that punk sound they're coming out. We're, we're coming out. Those two tracks, you're like, okay, this is the replacement I used yeah. to. Tommy gets his tonsils, tonsils out. It's like that kind of like eh, a little bit of a B-side here. And, and at the time, and everybody forgets too. Tommy was only 15 or 16 at the time of this album. Yeah, it's kind of impressive. Yeah, impressive, considering that he learned the bass. Because the whole band was young, relatively yeah. speaking. Like, yeah, they're they're kids, you know what I mean? Yeah, Paul's the, like, you know, quote-unquote, elder spaceman. Um, and this is when he kind of, like, Hootenanny was, it was always Bob's band until Hootenanny. And then Paul kind of was like, all right, I'm the songwriter, we're doing it my way. And then number f- then the, the fifth track on this song, Androgynous, is one of the best underrated songs to me of all time because That's it's a bold statement it's a bold statement but it's also think about the subject matter at the hand you're talking about in the mid 80s here people don't talk about cross-dressing or people accepting nature for what it is this is kind of a song and i and i'm not trying to sound like a hipster douche when i say this but it really was way ahead of its time in the sense that the the subject matter in the song is I mean some of the lyrics in the song he's talking about like it's some, something that wouldn't sound out of place now like an, ident- right, an identity yeah. politics kind of song that you could release in 2019 that would be germane to now as opposed to a song released in 1984 which is yeah impressive. Here comes Dick. He's wearing a skirt. Here comes Jane, you know she's sporting the chain. Same hair revolution, same build evolution. Tomorrow who's gonna fuss? And they love each other so androgynous. Closer than you know, love each other so Yeah, considering you're in the era of the Ronald Reagan era, and here you are talking about just being comfortable with your gender. Um, I mean, one of the, you know, uh, the part here, don't get me wrong, don't get me mad. He might be a father, but sure ain't dad. She doesn't need advice that she'll they'll send her, her. She's happy with the way she looks. She's happy with her gender. Sure. And seeing, like, mirrored image, see no damage, Seeing the people when I saw them in Riot Fest when they first got back together, uh, 2012, 2013, I can't remember when they were playing, and seeing people get teared up about hearing the song, that's the kind of song. The piano, too, same thing. Piano, yeah. like, outside of Billy Joel, when you hear piano in a song? Well, yeah. <laughs> not, not rock, like popular <laughs> rock, rock yeah. songs. Well, Elton John. Yeah, but in the 80s. In like, the 80s, yeah. yeah. And it's, it's, no, it's, a it's a different... It's a different realm of rock you know like, yeah i had to say something i think people forgot i was in the <laughs> no, studio here so no, i feel i feel a little bad i know ben that you, no, okay. you are not as familiar with this band as the two of us are but no you know there is there is a lot to glean here from from the progression of a band that was very much like a thrashy kind of youthful exuberance punk thing yeah into a band of dudes who were not great at their instruments yet but like progressing through a way that was more familiar to like a, a pop rock kind of sound 
and into like actually great songwriters. Like there's, yeah. you know, I I have more to say about the next two records, but I know Let It Be is a masterpiece Good. considered considered a masterpiece within this circle, and it is it is indicative of a band that is rising. But then Unsatisfied, Unsatisfied is a song that I went through a couple. When I went through a couple breakups. It was that breakup song. It wasn't anonymous. Or it wasn't as played in succession as Tom Petty's. Uh, Nineteen eighty three. We talked about that before. Nineteen <laughs> classic uh you got lucky. Um, I was out the other day in a place I could not leave and that song was playing and I was furious the entire time <laughs> it was playing. Like cursing you in a in a way that I couldn't say out loud to the people I was with, but I was fucking mad. <laughs> I was so mad hearing that goddamn song. Anyway, we're not talking about Tom Petty. All right, and then senior video, then ripping on N T V, which would be part of their next two albums, which we'll get right, to. Yeah. Uh Sixteen Blue is a great track, kind of like a track that's kind of forgotten about, but that's a great track. And Answer Machine Although dated, it is a sign of, you know, I, I don't want to talk to your answering machine and just, like, him trying to get a hold. And at the time, would be his his first wife, who was Ann Arbor resident. So he married okay. a woman from Ann Arbor. Good for you. So think about it that time. You had to, you know, he was trying to get a hold of his, his wife, the well, alleged rumor. So. And, and plus, people nowadays could consider that ghosting, right? I don't want to talk to, yeah. you know, like an empty text message screen or you know, voicemail or whatnot. So that's still relevant. Yeah. And that, like, it's, it's still, re- yeah, no, you're right. I didn't even think about that, but, uh, but the part that the, 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 especially the, the, there's two lyrics in that part where he says, big town's got its losers, small town's got its vices, a handful of friends, one needs a match, one needs some ice or like the, uh, try to free, try and free a slave of ignorance. Try to teach a horror about romance. How do you say I miss you to an answering machine? And that right there kind of sums up Paul Westenberg in a nutshell at that period of time and just kind of going against the grain a little bit, which kind of leads into Tim, which came out in 1985, October of 1985. So this is the follow-up to Let It yep. Be. This is follow-up to and Let how, It Be. And it's like, how do you top that kind of thing? You know what I mean? Yeah. And this is also them moving towards, they are going away from the local label scene and they're going towards yeah this is the this is their first major label release yeah yeah this is yeah. their face yeah. with like the original lineup of the band yeah under sire yeah. which is a warner brothers uh subsidiary mm-hmm. so madonna this, released albums on sire yeah big sire. madonna big madonna stand here so I'll, i can tell you all about that but anyway yeah. um it was you know they were moving to major labels this is it they were on twin tone which is a minnesota label so um this was their way of staying up with husker do um because they're really they they decide they still record it in Minnesota. And the fun fact about this album too, Tommy Ramone, who doesn't really get a lot of producing credits, actually helped him produce this album and polished up the sound a little bit. And, and Let It Be is a progression or excuse me, Tim is a progression from Let It Be in terms of big sound and trying to get it going a little yeah, bit. Yeah, it's, it's it's like a cleaner it's a cleaner approach to the, yeah. what I think the material on Let It Be is. Yeah. And and not for, not to the detriment of the record. Like I, I think Tim is excellent. This is I have listened to Tim more than I have listened to Let It Be, and I know that. in, in talking to some Matt's fans, which is the name, the nickname of the band, when yeah. I start start sounding like wrestling inside talk here. Um, so in talking to other like hardcore Matt's fans, I think Let It Be is the record that gets like the the lion's share of like the cred of like oh well this is when they became like the great stuff, but. For me, I think Tim track to track is a better listen. I, I feel bad because I I know that like I will dare is probably a better song than everything on Tim, but like Bastards of Young, uh Waitress in the Sky, Kiss Me on the Bus, these are all like classic songs that I love and I return to all the time. And they're all on Tim. Like again, no slight to let it be, but my favorite songs 
are on this record. No, I I think Tim listening to it. I, I have debated about it for a long time, but Tim is the album that irks the most emotion out of me, the most uh, response out of me in terms of not even emotion, but just overall. I think let it or excuse me, Tim is better than let it be because it's deeper. I mean, let it be was a couple of throwaway tracks too in there that you still dig no matter what. It, it, yeah. It's really good for the composition of the album, but you look at stuff like, you know, waitress in the sky kind of making fun of his sister who was a, uh, Stuart. She was a airplane stewardess. Yeah, yeah. And like, you know, talk about labels and, and making fun of him for just being himself. And, um, Bastards of Young. Left of the Dial is one of my favorite songs of all time. Same. It, it's really high up the list. Yeah. yeah. The way it starts off, like, and then it's just, the way it just kicks off is amazing. Here comes a regular, is a set, like, every time I've heard that song, like, I've heard that song, I can't play it around Sarah because she's like, this is the most depressing song, but it's so good. I don't care. I don't care. It's so And good. this is, you know, to talk about how it's underrated, this is an album that's being released in the time of things like Dire Straits being the yeah. top of the charts, you know, like, uh, things like USA for Africa is like the most popular single of the year you know the we are the world shit so uh, Wham is like really popular in 1985 so we're we're coming across like a weird kind of sea change in popular kind of rock music where it's not yeah. straight up rock and roll has kind of taken a back seat to stuff and they're putting out like arguably gems of the genre in a time when people aren't listening to it as much and true yeah no you're absolutely right dave i mean in terms of true rock and roll art to speak to the underrated aspect of yeah yeah and and like yeah this is i mean this is okay so if you want to give an example of a capsule of 1985 everybody wants to rule the world the biggest song in the world at the time Mm -hmm. a view to kill duran duran uh, you know, which is great. I love that. I love both of those songs. Sure, yeah. Nice Shift by the Commodores. Great oh, track. Oh, man. That is that is one of my all-time songs. Yeah. I don't want to get sidetracked. Yeah, but yeah. But, that, but that's, that's like a top 50 songs of song, all night, time. Night Shift? <laughs> yeah, Night Shift is awesome. But like that, that boom, 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 yeah. boom, boom, boom. Something like that kind of electronicness existed. Rhythm of the Night by DeBarge, for Christ's sake, was yeah, up there. Yeah, so we're, we're, not, we're not listening to guitars the same yeah. way, you know. No, guitar is gone. The key guitar. The ki- yeah, the yeah, guitar. The guitar is relevant i mean shout out to mike heck yeah shout out to mike heck <laughs> starship is <laughs> starship is big you know what i mean like cory hart bolt but taran tarzan anyway so that's you get that's what we're at yeah that's that's what we're at in popular yeah. popular rock and music. in terms of rock con- contemporaries quote-unquote the one you have to aim for is essentially john mellencamp and Huey Lewis. That people yeah. co- people consider rock at the time Huey Lewis, ladies and gentlemen. No offense to Huey Lewis fans, <laughs> but fuck you. Okay? Look, because you You're look at piss off a lot of people with statements like yeah, that. Roger this, always coming with the hottest takes on over under. Yeah, look, if this is it, please let me know that this band really sucks, really so, okay? <laughs> Jesus Christ. Anyway. Now, anyway. But swing party, like another one. Swing party is like these songs are like sto- like what I like about this is such a storied out like stories. Like you think of swing party, you think of like some like experience, like a drunken experience, or just like you're sitting around. Like it's a it reminds me of high school, and, I'm, and this mm. is 1985. I graduated in the late 90s, so this has nothing to do with me whatsoever. But yeah, swing party is like the way it starts off. Lord has a really good cover of swing party. I don't know if you ever heard yeah, no, I have, and it's yeah, really good. It's no, good. Lord, Lord does a really good job of it, but um. Even Dose of Thunder, you know, give me one dose of thunder. Like that kind mm. of, it's only 216, but it hits you pretty hard. Lay it down, clown. Um, and then their videos, too. They were it's just a guy sitting on the couch 
listen to the record because it's like MTV. Like they're yeah. like MTV's like you have to make a video. So like, like, all right, well we'll make this boring ass video. Yeah. The guy sitting on a couch. Yeah, fuck you, kind of thing. And that's what I like about this album, Tim. And this is also the last album Bob Stinson would be on. Oh yeah, okay. And the reason why this is significant because and Bob Stinson is for they, people who don't know. Yes, Bob Stinson's the lead guitarist of the band at the time, and he was a very a, indelible part of that sound. Like absolutely, yeah. And that's what made some. Thank you, Dave. That that brings it to the other point about this underrated. Bob Simpson as a guitar player, when he wasn't inebriated or I mean, I don't want a giant to, story of this yeah, band, but yeah, yeah, it's it's fair to bring up when he wasn't super fucked up. Yeah, was he super fucked up? Was amazing guitar player and, and agreed, totally agreed. And he this unfortunately this on him leaving the band or him getting kicked out of the band eventually killed him. Yeah, little, quite literally and. It wasn't the same. I mean, the the bands. You know, you go to Please to Meet Me, which we'll talk about here in a second. But Bob Simpson was so instrumental in the guitar of the band. He gave it that raw sound. And I, you know, if you think about like Frank Black from the Pixies, I I put him in the same like. I feel like in some ways, no offense to any Pixie fans out there, that Frank kind of ripped him off because if you're looking for a chubby bald dude, I I think of Bob Simpson before I think of that tool in Frank from up the Pixies. Sorry. I'm not a big fan of that. We guy. don't have to tear everybody down. I'm not tearing tear everybody down. I'm not, I'm not tearing them down. <laughs> you know, I love I love the Pixies. I just don't. I think Frank's a douche. But yeah, anyways. well, he's a noted asshole. Like yeah, that's noted. part of that's part of his whole thing. But I feel like he ripped off this kind of sound a little bit with that. But uh, right. no, it comes in at thirty. And you know, Nirvana ripped off the Pixies. And yeah, then people rip off Nirvana. We go forever. Yeah, we go on. This is right. music. That's how this works. Yeah, know? and this is well, also sampling now. That's true. But <laughs> I don't. I don't rip off. I sample. Yeah. I tribute. It's, uh, it's one thing when you're sampling and one thing when you're wholesale did, like taking someone's sound. Yeah. I'm not trying to accuse Nirvana of being plagiarist. They no. were very big Pixies fans, but that's, you know, that's neither here nor there. Yeah, and the and the thing about this album too it's important to remember is this is this came it was recorded in about a month in 1985 in Minnesota. Which is super impressive. Like yeah. to get to get a uh, an assemblage of these songs that are this good done in like a of that frame of time, you know, is great. Considering that the band was also having internal problems and dealing with substance abuse and stuff, like to get that all committed yeah. to to wax in a month is like fucking wow. Like good yeah. job by you. <laughs> yeah, and exactly, and that's the reason. Why, and I'm glad you mentioned this because that kind of segues into "Please to Meet Me" because yeah. So this the is the real reason we're here. Yeah, this is Dave's favorite album and this My favorite placements album. This is an album that had a lot of problems and a lot of problems because oops sorry about that um it had a lot of problems because they were having warner brothers was sending them producers and they were just denying everybody and so they there was a lot of issues with the band and and, and if you get if you get a chance read the book trouble boys the true story of the replacements by bob muir and it goes over quite a bit of it and the the whole thing about the album was the producer and the Arden crew, which was done, it was in Arden Studios in Memphis, Tennessee, where Big Big Star was. And that was the appeal because Paul Westenberg was a huge fan. Of Alex Shilton? Yeah, Alex Shilton. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. I, yeah. the, he's name-checked in a title of a song on this record. And it also makes sense because Big Star was an excellent band. And that's... I no full spoiler alert. We will be discussing Big Star at length at some point in the life of this show. I have awesome. every intention of doing that, I'm, but not today. So go ahead. Yeah, um, that that excites me. And you know, even when he the the producer was Jim Dickerson, and when Paul gets off the the plane, November fourth, nineteen eighty six. This is something to remember too. Um, the band like Paul Westberg, I the producer, and he goes, "I'm not going to give you a hundred percent because you don't deserve it." 
Yeah, and that's that's kind of the attitude that got them. Yeah, for better and for worse, where they were in their career, you know, like it it helped them in a lot of ways, but it also kind of stunted, I think, the growth of the band from becoming a, a more reliable, notable thing, you know. And it, it's it's arguable whether or not that is ultimately good for their legacy. I think it works, like for what this band would become now, like thirty years away from all this stuff happening, because it gives it gives us, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, like a a more punk rock appreciation of how they did business. You know what I mean? Like a band that was willing to be great, but not willing to prove it. And that's not a bad thing. You know what I mean? Like they, they did, they, they made the music and they felt that was enough to make it stand on their own merit. And I agree with them mostly. Yeah. And, and this is the first album too, that they were separated because, uh, Paul Westenberg was put in a room known as the dungeon and he kept the band separated a little bit and with, and, with the Hart family, <laughs> the Hart family dungeon. Yeah. Um, really, the, the other part of this too is that Tommy told, like Dickerson. I mean, and later on, they, he won him over by the style of this too. But uh, they had planned on breaking up at that point. Yeah. Um So the band was, like I said, it was you're right. You know, Stan Turmoil. They're focused on Chris Mars's drumming, which they thought was. Not good, and, and and talk about the track of the album itself. The reason why I think it's underrated, and Dave and I differ about this. I mean, Dave, think, this is his favorite replacement album. I think it's great. I, it, I I I respect all the love that Tim and Let It Be get as masterpieces, but this is the first record I listen to. If I listen to the replacements, it's the first one that pops in my head. I think it's because they had evolved the sound to a place where they were still doing those things, but the production was just better enough even with the internal conflict of the production to make these songs last more like in a in a remembering them you know what i mean yeah and alex shilton is my you, favorite replacement song yeah, i that, know that's going to be cliche and a lot of people will give me shit for no, that but not, i think that song is perfect i don't think that song i don't think it's cliche at all i mean i i understand why it's a really good song and also like i like the harmonization like ooh, like that it's beautiful yeah, it's, it's a really beautiful done. song yeah that nightclub jitters is kind of think underrated, but the ledge, which is a kind of a, a very dark, it's song. it's incredibly dark song, but it's very good. It's yeah, about it's very suicide. Good. It's very sad, and it yeah. was, uh, notably had a had a video that they made for MTV that they did not run. It was banned yeah. because of the content and the lyrics. And I, but I mean, you know, all alone from the, you know sitting from the west, everything Skyway, yeah. and then can't hardly wait, a yeah. very very famous song which begat a movie being titled yeah. after it, and what? the song is featured in the end credits. But it's you know it's a. It's a famous song, even without it being known as a replacement song. Yeah, and the Skyway, of course, if you guys are familiar with Minnesota in downtown Minneapolis, uh, <laughs> can never say that word right. <laughs> it's like the Indian, the Algonquin or something pronunciation. Man, me, me, uh, um, but the uh, Skyway is a really cool romantic song about like you know, find me on the Skyway and just kind of like this, you know, cheese song. You find it almost like Paul, kind of like. Showing, okay, you know, I'm not always angry kind of moment. but Yeah, the, it's a sentimental kind yeah. of thing. And the ode to Alex Chilton, though. Alex Chilton was so influential on some of these bands. He doesn't get a credit till like, the Millennium, which, unfortunately, he passes away before. I think he really, I mean, he got, he, he got his dues at that point. But Sure, uh, but before he really got to get appreciated, yeah, yeah, he was no longer with us. But overall, this was an album that I think, to me, and, and, you know, they, and they've said it on a couple reviews, but I, I, and I come to terms to realize, like, after this, this is peak replacements because after this, all like you know, the next album, "Don't Tell a Soul," is essentially a Westenberg solo project. At that point, he's just trying to get the band to do something, um, and also they're they 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 have so many problems recording that one. But that's another story for another day. And then "All Shook Down," which came out 
in '90, and that was it. That was, and they again, that was also having a lot of problems. But and they, it's, I think, what's underrated about the streak too is that you see a band evolve into a sound at Let It Be, and then sustain it through three arguably perfect rock albums, and yeah. then it all disappears. Like it, it yeah. collapses almost immediately after that, and they do not, they do not sustain like no. the band the band is no longer a band you know paul westerberg would go on to have his own successes as a solo artist and with other things and other members of the band would do other things but it's yeah. never it's never it's never the same they had lightning in a bottle for like a sustained period of like five years and then it's all gone and that, that's it's heartbreaking but it is amazing that they were able to collect it enough to make these records because they are all close to faultless yeah you know? and, and i mean, definitely agree with you these are under this is an underrated an underrated era of production in such a small period of time. And not to mention, too, the reason why I think it's my the biggest reason for me it's underrated is simply this: you have a band who like were not classically musically trained. There are just a bunch of kids literally playing around. Paul Westbrook found the band. You know the the legend is, and then you know he was walking down the street after he got his job as a janitor for high school in '79, and Bob Stinson's keeping his brother out of trouble, Tommy. Because no one was home, and, and Stinson's came in from a bad family, and Chris Mars was the guy they knew at school who's a quiet, who's a great artist. Yeah, and he, you know, they they let him go after "Don't Tell a Soul," and he wasn't on a part of the uh, album. And unfortunately, it's kind of like caused dissension. I mean, they got they did the songs for Slim because Slim was the guitarist who played who replaced Bobby Stinson in '87 for uh, "Please to Please to Meet Me." Yeah. So that you know the weight of Paul doing that pretty much an inebriated state essentially, and then when he realized that he had to wise up, it was too late. Yeah. And by then, they burned a bridge. They were permanently banned from SNL until recently. They were they their shows that people have said they sucked and they were horrible. To you know they were great. Like case in point, they were great in Toronto. When we saw them in Detroit, eh. yeah. Because Paul Westerberg was sick and he decided to put a tent in the middle of the stage and was like, <laughs> it was fuck a weird it. look. And that was the last time they played it together as a band, by the way. Yeah, the Detroit show was the last time they played together. Wait, as a band. there was a tent on stage? Yeah, they did. Yeah, yeah he Like a little pop up tent and he just went and disappeared into it for like a song and a half. Yep. And the band played on. Like it was, yeah. it was strange. Was he still singing in the tent? I feel like maybe. He, uh, he was, yeah, no, but he was kind of like, I'm mailing it in. I don't feel yeah, like it. Yeah, it was. But strange. what if he was just like in there puking his brains out if he was that sick? It's possible, like, but yeah. the, the history of this band would let you know that like it's not a good look. <laughs> like if yeah, if something no, is yeah. going on this way, it means there's problems with the band because there was hey, always problems with the band. Where'd, where'd Paul go? Yeah. Right. Is everyone just like, okay, we're just going to keep playing? Yes, yeah. I'm the guitar guy. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah, pretty much. And Stinson, and Tommy Stinson and him had a kind of a fresh relationship for a while after that. And Tommy Stinson's the bassist, of course, the young bassist. But uh, before we go too far into a biography of this band, yeah. which I am not, not trying to slight you, I want to keep us on track here. So we'll say that this is underrated. I would compare this to other streaks of greatness we're, we're gonna move on a little right. bit after this but oh, absolutely like i and this is like i don't want to sound like i'm overselling it but this is really high praise coming from me uh i would put this in comparison to something like dylan's early like middle 60s run of like blonde on blonde and highway 61 like the the this the run of bob dylan records the 60s the beatles short run like their second half of their career where everything is critically acclaimed those bands had the cachet of being a world famous and b like well produced and sought after so they were like hot commodities that put out great music and their genius is great but this was like a bunch of kids from minnesota that scrapped together to make three fucking great records in yeah. a row like that that part i think is what makes it so underrated is that they have made 
lasting records that were made like you know really kind of DIY by comparison. Yeah, and that's super impressive. So and, and, and all the credit in the world to them. I was gonna say, and, and the last thing I was gonna say about, it, and that's a good way to put it, DIY. And also DIY, but yeah, DIY. Do um, yourself it. Yeah, do yourself it. But uh, the replacements to me are the last bastion and bands really that didn't have a lot of like financial backing. They I mean they did with Sire when they got run up with Warner Brothers, but their sheer talent in terms of just pure rawness and what have you. It was it, the eighties, you could say what you will about eighties being like over processed music and synth and all that stuff. But the I think the eighties represent the last time and maybe the early nineties could be argued as well, but I think the eighties represent the last time bands like this, the like the the replacements Bands that like kind of forged together, who didn't really, I mean, they, even their own hometown, they were kind of like Husker Du got more in, the, in Minnesota than well, they they're did. also going from Minnesota, like Prince is from Minnesota yeah. in the eighties. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. how do you compare to Prince? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, it's you're you're even like fourth or fifth run in your own state. Yeah, <laughs> no, know? no, you're right. But but if you're not from L.A. or New York at that time, you're a nobody. And then they able to to to, obscure, uh, to escape that to put yourself out there like that the way they did. It's pretty impressive, and it's very impressive. And, and you know, it's you're right. I think with the Dylan run, also I would think even I, I would put venture like the band, the band, the songs for the Big Pink, sure, in that same kind of realm too. Yeah. As well. So that's yeah, that's my underrated streak. All right, I agree with you 100. percent I endorse all of what you said, and everybody. If you are not familiar with the replacements, you should familiarize yourself with them. This includes you, Ben. Who we're going to move to now? I know you're not like super music guy, but man, no, they got I, some good shit. Well, like I said, I, I was kind of hoping we could get live samples, but we'll, like I said, we'll do it in post. And when I drive uh, to USA Hockey Arena later on tonight, I'll do it hear, on iTunes. You will hear all of the songs, yeah. and I, I will en- envelop myself in the replacements. You Rap, should wrap yourself in it like a beautiful jangly I, blanket. And I think we're going to play that during the intermission <laughs> music uh, tonight, just so other people can appreciate it. Yeah, and I, so, I, I, like, yeah. I like your mode of thinking. Uh, speaking of thinking, and Ben, hey man, hi, <laughs> welcome to the show. <laughs> I've, I, I have been here the whole time. It's not just audio drops of me talking. Be like, yeah, what about this? Well, you're going to be here now, baby, because uh, we're going to have you go next. So, Ben, we've talked about the replacements. Yes, what is your underrated streak? Well, as you said, you know, we were we were kind of uh, thinking like around the Super Bowl, what what could it be? So, the one that I first thought of was the Buffalo Bills going to four straight Super Bowls and losing them. And then I was thinking, well, you know what? We're based in Detroit. What would be a Detroit streak? We that... are very much based in Detroit. And <laughs> shout out to SportsRadioDetroit.com. <laughs> and uh, well, I wanted to keep it, you know, kind of with a local feel and. I thought to myself, I was like, okay, well, what kind of gets maybe underappreciated, even though now with the team the way it is, maybe it's starting to get a little more appreciative and let's be, you know, know, have some souvenirs of better times, right? Amen. uh, (laughs) (laughs) But for me, just because of of what went into it and everything that went on inside of it, the Detroit Pistons' six uh, consecutive Eastern Conference Finals. Uh, granted, they didn't win them all, uh, but I it, yeah they took away one in 03, mm-hmm. so they got they got one championship out of that. Yeah, it, and two finals appearances, so they did make it yes, to 04 yeah, and, and yeah. lost to the Spurs. But go yes, ahead. and and that's and that's what it is though. Like you know, it it it's one of those streaks that's really really hard to do. The Eagles kind of did the same thing with uh, going to the NFC uh, Championship games. Um, so it's you know you're 
when everyone thinks that, you know, you go, that's why I immediately I thought about the Bills because they made it to the championship game and then, you know, lost. So people are like, well, you know, that's a little more impressive because you were playing for a title. Well, it's still hard, though. It's, like, well, to exactly. make it to the finals of anything is hard. To do it four years in a row is near impossible. Right. Even, even the now Patriots, I don't think, have made four consecutive no. Super Bowls. Right. You know. So, and, and that's why, I'm, you know, I was thinking, I was like, you know, what is truly underappreciated? Because it was good early. With the Pistons, and then in the second half of this Eastern Conference final run uh, of the six, it wasn't good, and a lot of stuff happened. Uh, you know, a couple of the core guys that were a part of what made it special went on and kind of made Pistons fans angry. One being Ben Wallace, who's now reintroduced himself back into the Detroit landscape. You see him around uh, LCA a lot uh, with Rasheed Wallace. They're also doing. It's Little Caesars Arena for our out-of-town listeners. Yes. <laughs> this is where the Pistons play. The dojo, um, you could call it. Uh, the pizza capital, whatever you want to call it. I liked, I wanted I wanted so desperately when I found out Little Caesars had naming rights for them to call it the Slice. It didn't happen. I'm right. okay with it. But, you know, well, yeah. where, secretly that's what I wanted. To where do. are you going tonight? To the Slice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Head down to the Slice, catch a Red Wing game. <laughs> slice of game. life. There you go. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Oh, well. What could have been? But, um yeah, so that that's what I thought of. I I, I thought of the Pistons uh six consecutive Eastern Conference finals just because like even the teams they went through. I think that's good too because it's it's easy for us to speak to that like as people as you know native, yeah. you know Michiganders of like a, something we lived through, but nationally this is probably not something that anyone has given credit to in years like well, right. since it happened. And plus, if ever. and plus the starting five was the f- only starting five to go and be a starting five in an all-star game. And we're coming up with right. an all-star game coming up you know, soon uh, in the NBA. So that's why all these things were just juggling around my head like a bunch of uh, you know, just beanbags going in the air. And I was like, well, yeah, this, I think a lot of people don't truly appreciate what this uh, you know, going-to-work Pistons, because that's what the era the was. Era, yeah. It's time to get back to work. And the Pistons are punching in Sunday, November 11th against the Trailblazers. Don't miss this mountain of a matchup. Sunday, November 11th at the Palace. Uh, was truly about. Obviously, you had the Bad Boys era in the you know mid to late 80s, very early 90s. And the Pistons weren't good uh, in between that time. We had Grant Hill in his prime and did nothing. <laughs> yeah. We had Jerry Stackhouse, who was decent but did Nothing. That was not Grant Hill's fault, though. I mean, no, he got injured, but uh, still, though, like that's what I'm saying. Like, you have that time in between the bad boy Pistons and the going to work Pistons, where you know the city truly fell back in love with basketball. Hopes were high. Yeah, I remember being and, here at that time. Again, yeah, there was buzz of like this could be our this could be a continuation of greatness, right. and it just didn't. It never happened. And before you know, they played at LCA. You know, they played at the Palace, and the Palace had that mystique again, right? Everyone was like, oh, we got to go back up to Auburn Hills. We got to watch the Pistons. I, rem- I remember having watch parties while this was going on. And you think there's a watch party for the Pistons going on right now? No. You know, so that's why, you know, I started uh, thinking about this because it was. It was something that uh, really started with a core group of guys and, um, you know, a couple of um, really just a really good draft pick in uh, Tayshawn Prince that now, you know, a lot of people, even at the time, weren't, weren't giving Tejon his all due respect. No, absolutely and, not. Yeah. He, was, he was he just left, a guy. Yeah, like, exactly. Because when 
and he then stayed with this team forever <laughs> like, well, right. after that. And yeah, it's just you know, it's it's just a lot of things that people don't talk about. I so. think it's the reason why too is because I mean David Stern not once but twice has screwed over the Pistons. I mean he screwed them over during the championship run the first time with the with the Jordan rules, and then the second time after the Spurs Pistons series, which drew the worst ratings, and he's. Soften the rules. Yeah, and then never wanted yeah. to see that shit again. Yeah, I never wanted. He's like, I'd rather see Lakers and Lakers, or you know, <laughs> that's what he said. I mean, he legitimately said that. Yeah. So that's what I think the reason why this kind of gets buried a little bit because it was not beautiful basketball. Yeah. Like I'm not, no. I'm not going to try to sell them short. These teams were great, and it was awesome to watch. But it was a, it was a grindy team. You know, they were going to out rebound you. Yeah. They were going to out hustle you on defensive plays, but they might not always make beautiful transitions, but they, they won. Like that's that's what mattered. Posting, you know, like consecutive fifty win seasons in like O two and O three to improve yeah. into a team that was worked so well together where all the pieces fit and to sustain that for six straight seasons. Now it is it is important to note that they did not win all of these years, but no. I think that's secondary to the accomplishment. Like to make it to the end of the road Every single year against teams that were hungry and maybe younger or maybe flashier, you know, to do that consistently as a team that is not in any way superior to most of the teams they were beating, like that was very impressive. I I just find that particularly interesting. And this team didn't have like a NBA superstar on this team. No, like, it was a team. Well, like, right, and, and and that's something that you know nowadays people are like, well, look at what LeBron James is doing. It's an impressive streak going to the finals repeatedly. Very, very impressive, but we're talking about arguably one of the greatest basketball players of all time. Not arguably. He is in the conversation. Well, like, that, it's, well, he's one like, or two or three. Well, right. I mean, a lot, of, a lot of people will still say Michael Jordan you know, is the great. That's, right. why, that's why I say it arguably. It doesn't matter who well, it is, right. but he's definitely in that conversation. Yeah. And, and the funny thing is, he's a part of this, too. His coming out party came at the near the tail end of this. Yeah. So, it's just with this streak, it's just been it, it just encompasses a lot of a lot of impressive feats. I mean, there was a term a five game sweep, which never came about until the Pistons uh swept the Lakers for their um for their championship in 04. Uh, because they did. They totally flat-out dominated the Lakers. And a Lakers team that had Shaquille O'Neal, Kobe Bryant, Gary Payton. Granted, Payton was you know, way past his prime. Sure, uh, but they were, but they were still good enough. Yeah. Like those, You caught those players at a time where they were still good enough. They, were, they had already won. Like They had proven that they were winning a winning formula. And you know they came into a buzzsaw against the Pistons right. of just a, a squad that was unselfish and played a level of basketball above other teams with superstars because they could function so well together. Yeah. And so also another thing that's impressive about this streak, I can't go into a a large diatribe, but they did it with three different coaches. uh, That's super important to mention. Which a lot of people don't remember, or maybe they, I, maybe they choose to forget, you know, just forget just out of just, Oh yeah, that was three coaches because one of them was only around for one year. And one of them didn't get along with Bill Davidson. So Davidson said, take a hike. You know, we have a better guy uh, in mind, and they brought in Larry Brown. But And this guy is still in the league. And this guy, I believe, now coaches with Dallas um, still. And, you know, he has a great rookie in uh, Luka Doncic. And I think he even won an NBA Finals uh, in, in Dallas as well. Yeah, he did. So, you know, it's just, 
it's just you look at just what again what this all did we say Bruce Carlisle because that's who we're talking about. I don't know if we mentioned Rick Carlisle. Rick Carlisle. I'm sorry, Bruce Carlisle. <laughs> Rick Carlisle. Yeah, but yeah, it, I mean that's the guy we're talking about. Rick Carlisle yeah. still in the league, still a very, very, very successful coach, and he oh, was absolutely, and he was the one who actually started this turnaround uh, with the Pistons, where the Pistons were actually starting to become a little bit relevant because he was hired after the 2000 uh, 2001 season, um, and. You know, Joe Dumars at the time, again, kind of tying past to present. Former Pistons player. You know, he was their shooting guard. You know, he was a part of the backcourt with Isaiah Thomas, who some people will still say was one of the best point guards of all time. And he turned into a a managerial role and, and just the way that he crafted this team. And it started with the hiring of Rick Carlisle. And then uh, after... um, the 2001 season, Dumar said, I need to change this up. This isn't working. This We're not hitting the goals I want to hit. So what does he do? He takes a flyer on a journeyman uh, NBA point guard. We now know him as Mr. Big Shot because Chauncey Billups made every big shot possible, which he did uh, in the playoffs like against the Nets, You know, making that huge half-court shot that everyone still talks about. Uh, he re- acquired Rip Hamilton, who still uses a vocabulary that, you know, if you were alive during this time, I think still gets used with the, yes, sir. (laughs) I mean, uh, like a lot, like, how, like, you know, can you do this? Yes, sir. (laughs) Like people that really appreciated this, that, that got absorbed into the lexicon. And of course the Pistons, um, acquired them, uh, from the Washington Wizards. And then we, like we said, they drafted Tayshaun Prince out of Kentucky and Dave, as you said, they, Started to win consecutive 51 seasons, and it was the first time they did that since 91. Yeah. So, you know, it was something that it had been a very long time. And, of course, uh, they were swept immediately by the Nets uh, in the first year of this run. And that's what did in Rick Carlisle. I know. In retrospect, like, man, I really want that back. Like, that... That Nets team was good, but they would go on to lose in spectacular fashion later Mm -hmm. on. And I still... I I'm as not a giant Pistons fan, but I you know as anybody was during this time, I was definitely paying attention. That one still feels a little stingy because I feel like if they would have gotten through the Nets, we could be talking about a seven-year consecutive run. But right. it didn't happen. But that's okay. Yeah. So they they bring in Larry Brown. Larry Brown also coined the term "We want to play the right way," and that's where this whole team concept really just started to build and started to manifests itself and the Pistons were still a very reliable team but they were one piece away and they acquired Rashid Wallace in a trade uh, right before the trade deadline and he came in and really helped this team develop a swagger and an an extra level of toughness about it. I would also say he's probably the closest thing this team had to like a all-star player quote unquote. Like if there was a guy that was the guy on this team it was him outwardly like publicly but to ask him and to watch them play he didn't play that way right you know what i mean like rashid knew rashid had a bigger role sometimes than other pistons would but he never he would never have a problem demurring to chauncey or demurring to rip when the points needed to get scored like yeah. he was he was playing team ball and he still was he had an attitude coming in like he had us you know a legacy of being a problematic player pri- prior to coming to detroit uh, it was a good game both teams play hard both teams play hard my man both teams play hard. 
both teams play hard. God bless and good night. Mm-hmm. And they they worked with that instead of against it. And that's it's all the credit to them for taking the chance on him and making that pay off. Yeah. Yeah, and, it, and it's true. And then, of course, we know they rolled, and that's where we get the whole five-game sweep against uh, the Lakers. That still had a Shaquille O'Neal, still had Kobe Bryant, as we mentioned before. Gary Payton and Carl Malone a little bit past their prime, still chase, chasing still a ring. All-time but players, still great players. They're still Hall of Fame yeah, players. Absolutely, they're, they're very good players. I actually was fortunate to talk with Gary Payton uh, last summer because he coaches in the Big Three when the Big Three. Oh came yeah, I remember there. that. Yeah, and. I will tell you this, just a quick little personal side note. I couldn't feel my legs throughout the entire six-minute interview <laughs> I had with Gary Payton because I was looking at the glove and talking with the glove in my childhood. I was like, you, you, you let the Sonics. Like, yeah. I, had, I had that Chris Farley moment of, you, you let the Sonics. <laughs> you, you're good. <laughs> what was that like? Did he, uh, you, were, were you asking him to talk trash to you? Because that's what he's Oh, no, out. but you could. <laughs> that would have been so good. <laughs> could, you, could you just tear me down right yeah. now, please? Ben, you can't pass. <laughs> yeah. let, let, last, last, question. What, last question, Mr. Glove. Could you insult me, please? And Yeah, no. But, I mean, that, that was a cool experience. And also, one thing that was big about that win was Bill Davidson became the first owner to win both an NBA and NHL uh, championship because he owned. The Lightning that year, and that was yeah, that's the, cool too. You know, that was a year right before the lockout, right in in the NHL. Oh, yeah. So that's what I'm saying. Like, forgot there, about the lockout. There's yeah. a lot of things that go inside this streak, and yeah. you know, the, the Pistons still did lose members. There uh, is so much weird happenstance, like during this yes. streak too, that we don't talk about. Like, we're coming right up to the Malice at the Palace, notably, yep. you know, between them and and the pacers of that whole brawl happening and that suspended a bunch of players and like the all of Larry Brown's kind of problems through the middle section of his coaching tenure there with health concerns and he was leaving he was and he was leaving so like they did all this oh and like and then uh drafting Darko Milicic in, mm-hmm. a, in a, at a place where they could have taken another superstar player like a Carmelo right. Anthony or whoever like there all these things that should have went wrong for them to make them not can, you know contend and all of them were just minor roadblocks like they still yeah. managed to make it consistently every year like we're in the finals we're at eastern conference finals like we're we're contending every year every year every year and like that is the most underrated part of all of it it's like this this wasn't just through no adversity like they overcame a lot of shit internally and externally and they were in it every year yeah and and here's the thing people will think larry brown stayed with the team for a while he stayed for two years yeah, it's a it's a blip in his like, coaching, right? Like, and, and, you know, and that's what legacy. I'm saying. Like it, it is. It's you know, it was his first NBA title, but you know, again, it was it was a blip. People are like, oh yeah, no, he was here for like four years. No, he was not. <laughs> so yeah, but as, as you talk about, you know, the the Pacers and Pistons started to develop this new rivalry. There was the as we <laughs> said, the malice at the palace. Right. Apart from that, though. Fun fucking rivalry. I it was amazing. love watching those Pacers games. They were chippy as hell, man. Well, Dudes just ready to brawl literally and figuratively at any given moment. Yeah. I mean, you had Jermaine O'Neal. You had Reggie Miller. You had guys that you know were instigators and, and guys that were cutthroat competitors. We, we all know the infamous image of Reggie Miller going to the garden and going right up to Spike Lee and doing a yeah. choke thing like, I don't like you. And of course, now when people see him as a commentator, because he's in his fifties for TNT, 
People like he's the nicest guy in the whole world, but he was cutthroat. Oh God, Reggie Miller was Reggie Miller was brutal <laughs> during his playing days. Man, that dude was that dude was yeah. something else. And and it was fun to watch him and Rip Hamilton just basically run around the court together because <laughs> he was shadowing Rip Hamilton. Rip Hamilton never stopped moving. Yeah, man. He would run baseline. He would run right around. He would do all of these things, and 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 it was fun. And you know, unfortunately. Um, the Pistons, they, they make it back to the finals, but then big shot Bob, Robert Ory, decided to kill that dream in seven games, having a you know big dagger shots in game six yeah. and game seven. And then Larry Brown started to have this, oh, well, I, I have health issues. I have health issues. You know, what, what are we going to do? <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. health issues that can only be taken care of in New York. Right, in that clean, crisp <laughs> Uh, country air that yeah. is in downtown you know, Manhattan, but uh, whatever. <laughs> but yeah, he does. He go, he coaches the Knicks and the Pistons. Get a guy named Flip Saunders. God rest his his soul. But uh, you know, Flip Saunders had success with the Timberwolves, so they thought, well, maybe we can you know keep this going. And and during the o five o six season, the Pistons recorded the NBA's best overall record, starting the season thirty seven and five, which was the best start. Of a you know Detroit in franchise history and tied the four- any Detroit sports yes. franchise like that's, that's across all the sports mm-hmm. e- even yeah. including the Tigers uh, you know back in 06 and what was it eighty four Roger when when they started what the the Tigers yeah when they had that oh uh, eighty four eighty like, seven. There's no when they won titles or no when no, they when, when, when they, they had started that streak, like having like when they started and... the season then they only lost like oh thirty five and five that's what it was yeah. yeah. Yeah, See, and and that's what we're talking about. Like, you know, that that streak was there, and it was the be- fourth best start starting through forty two games in NBA history. And um, as we said, the the All Star team starters: Chauncey Billups, Richard Hamilton, Rasheed Wallace, Ben Wallace, all to the, um, you know, all to the All Star, and and they and they get through, they get back, and they lose. I think in the Eastern Conference Finals, um, they end up. I think losing, yeah, they lost to Miami, yeah. and who then uh, and ended up winning the championship because they faced Miami in the Eastern Conference Finals the year before. Yeah, and Miami I don't even had, feel bad about that one. Like that was Miami's year. Well, you right, I mean? and Miami had Dwayne Wade and Shaquille O'Neal. Then, yeah, so that was a recipe for success for them. That there was there wasn't any coming back from that. Right, and then of course the Pistons lose Ben Wallace in uh, free agency, even though they were offered him the most money any Piston in history would have made. He spurned it, went to the Bulls, and that's when we start seeing the deconstruction. Of this great run and and the Pistons, still- but they still managed to get another one out of it though. Yes, like, two. Even, even yeah, even with losing players that were the core of this initial run, mm-hmm. they still managed to get to two more, like just on the cusps, just yeah. with piecing in players. That's that that speaks to the strength of like the team dynamic of these Pistons. What I think is underrated about it, like in comparing them to streaks between. You know, other dynasties like the Celtics who could do very similar things with more star players. And then the Jordan Bulls who had Michael fucking Jordan. Like, yeah. you compare them to streaks where other dudes had sustained greatness, but they had star players yeah. to build these teams around. The Pistons were, generally speaking, an assemblage of dudes. Like It really was. They were literally kind of just like parts in an automobile that just churned this whole engine. I think the Bulls were the same thing, though. I mean, was, They had Michael fucking Jordan, Roger. Saying, well, they had Jordan they, and a bunch of guys. But they had Jordan they and did Pippen. have a bunch of guys, but they had Michael Jordan. Like, it's, 
Michael I mean, Jordan is better than the entire. Why Pistons are we? Roster why are combined. we discounting Scottie Pippen? I mean, that sure, was the Scottie best one-two punch yeah. in almost an NBA history. It's, it's fair because Scottie Pippen could almost get his own underrated streak of just being Scottie Pippen that to Michael true. Jordan, right? You know, because he's so underappreciated. And when he and when he went to Portland, he was there with Rasheed Wallace, and they were doing damage yeah. in, the, in the Western Conference Finals. So, or in the Western Conference, you know, they were making Portland relevant for the first time since uh, Clyde Drexler played there. So, I mean, there's still that, right? And then. Like I said, all of it. One of the, and I, th- I think one of the uh, big biggest kind of other footnotes in this streak was in '06, right when LeBron James goes just flat out insane on the Pistons yeah. and gets. I mean, he had, he had to do it against somebody, you know. Like he, yeah. the story has to start somewhere. It, it may does. as well start there for LeBron James. Yeah, and and they lost the first two games of the series, and and LeBron James went nuts, basically scoring. The last twenty-five straight points in the fourth quarter was, forced uh, it into two overtimes. Too, uh. You you want you want to respect that more, but like watching it happen was so fucking deflating. It's like it was man, so this kid's so goddamn good. Couldn't it have been against anybody else, but yeah, uh, whatever. Man. No, I mean it, <laughs> like, it, it was awful. He scored twenty-nine of the final thirty points, including like I said, twenty-five uh, straight points, and they beat the Pistons in double overtime. And the Pistons never recovered as they were eliminated in Game 6. Yeah. And then the Pistons, obviously, the following year, everything was really starting to go bad. Chauncey Billups, uh, after they signed him to a long-term contract, had a hamstring injury. And the Pistons um, still advanced to the Eastern Conference Finals for the sixth straight season against the Celtics and the Boston Three-Party. And yeah. the Boston Three Party beat them it's and so, won a title. It is so wild to think about the teams that we had to come up against at yes. the time that they were ascending. You know, you mentioned Miami, and then this Boston. You know, the, the Boston Lakers dream. teams that were winning championships with Shaq and Kobe. I mean, yeah. And this was against guys that it was just a a group of guys that wanted to quote play the right way, and they yeah. went to work. And Mason, you know, yelling Detroit, <laughs> like all that stuff. Like it was a culture. It was a culture for a while, and I you know, yeah and. All the teams, as you said, that they had to go through, it was just. I think it's under. I, I think it's underappreciated, even though now, since it's a little bit darker times here in Detroit for basketball, maybe it's going to be appreciated a little bit more. Um, but, here, definitely, but I, yeah. I, I'm glad we brought it up that you you brought this into it because it is we have people that aren't necessarily local that right, listen right. and I that are sports fans, and I think it's important to let them know that there is if they don't already like. There is a very proud history of sports in Detroit, obviously. We know this. But on a national stage, things like this don't get discussed. Like, we know if you follow basketball, you would know the Pistons won a championship, you know, if you're like a fan of basketball. You probably know they won once. But you might not really know that they did it amidst a run of success that is difficult for teams to achieve. Like, you know, we can see teams like the Warriors being super hot now, and they've managed to get a couple titles out of this. But the Warriors were like leaps and bounds ahead of most of the division like opponents that they had until like this year where they're not quite. Yeah. But they were coming against you know scrubs in their own conference and some scrubbier teams at the bottom of the West. And the Pistons were kind of just having to fight with people the whole time. Like Indiana was good while they were good. New York kind of challenged for a hot minute. The Bulls were not terrible. Like we were dealing with teams in our own conference and in the division that were harder to play against the whole time that they Even were doing the Nets, New Jersey Nets. And the Nets, like, yeah. you know, a, a, another popular Pistons vote during this time. Like what's underrated about this run is that they did it through, as we've mentioned, some of these all-world all yeah. teams that won titles and even the ones that didn't. They were still competing against contenders pretty much the entire time. And that... 
is really impressive to have and, that sort of run. And the Spurs also were constantly And going we're in the to, middle of the you, fucking you know, Spurs. Like, like, you know. It was in the middle of like the Spurs dynasty, and, and it really was. It, you know, Tim Duncan, Manu Ginobili, Tony Parker, and the Spurs overshadows this. And they took them to seven games. Like That yeah. was you know, one of the greatest assemblies of a team sport basketball right. team of all time, and we took them to seven. And it was a, it was and, a know, fun series. It yeah. really, and, and the Pistons Yeah, low ratings it. or not, it was a fun series. I was going to say, and the Pistons in game six and game seven let Robert Ori get open twice, and he yeah. killed him. He killed him in the final seconds. So, big what shot, could, Bob. could have been, man? You know, yeah, it was, he was going to be a Piston, too. I mean, he was traded the Pistons, but it was I think it was Matt Buller said no. He was going to be a Piston. Yeah. Womp, womp. So, but, I mean, th- that's why, you know, at least from a, uh, we had a good pop culture reference from Raj with the replacements. I, you know, they do seem underappreciated. I figured I'd give something that has lost love and luster in Detroit, and that's Detroit basketball. Oh, I agree. That was an excellent choice. I am glad we discussed it. I will also have something to bring that will be different from the two of our previous choices, but we are going to take a very quick break, and we will come right back. We're back. All right. Thanks for holding on. Okay, so we've heard from Ben about the Pistons. We've heard from Roger about the replacements. And I am going to take us into another pop culture avenue uh, down film, which should surprise nobody. I want to talk about the directorial... I don't want to call it debut because it's a sustained period of time, but the initial directorial run of Rob Reiner as a filmmaker. Uh, Rob Reiner is not a man who, when you say, like, oh, name the greatest directors ever, we're going to hear Steven Spielberg, we're going to hear Quentin Tarantino, we're going to hear guys that are all great directors. Scorsese. Absolutely. These are all valid points. And these guys have a a sustained career of greatness. And Quentin Tarantino has a pretty great run of like consecutive great films. But it is discussed to death, including on this very show. If you want to check the archives, we have our episode about Quentin Tarantino, the director. We talk about it at length. And they are all merited. Now, I'm not going to tell you that Rob Reiner is the greatest director of all time, because I don't think he is. And his career will prove that after the initial run that I am discussing. However, um, through his debut into the mid-90s, Rob Reiner has a critical and commercial level of success that is Difficult to touch, like in the abstract of like, you know, measuring success. So you're like when you say a movie was not only great but also incredibly successful, Rob Reiner was your dude for like a decade, and I will talk about that right now. Uh, we're gonna get the second movie out of the way because uh, his second film is called The Sure Thing. It's a John Cusack uh, romantic comedy. It is very, it's you know, it is successful. Like it is a commercially successful movie. It does well. And it's a very young John Cusack. They had to lie about his age to get him to be able to star in the movie because he was underage at the time. I didn't know that. Yeah. So it's, it's like a really old early run John Cusack thing. Um, and uh, a co-star is apart from Daphne Zuniga, who you may remember from Spaceballs. She is the princess in Spaceballs, uh, and very little else. She's in the fly too, I think. So like, you know, Whatever. We're, it's an 80s romantic comedy. It's very good. It worked okay. But this isn't part of my conversation. As a debut director, his very first film, Rob Reiner you may recognize, if you don't know him, uh, from his starring original, early starring role in the 70s on All in the Family. I'm sorry. Is that the, is that the right show? That's correct. Yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah. I almost For some reason, I was thinking that was the fucking Urkel show, but that's not right at all. That's, <laughs> that's Family Matters. Families, the fuck you up. So, not on Family Matters, on All in the Family. 
Um, and he is like an actor and does some stuff. And then he decides to take his hand at directing in 1984, which he also helped write and was a actor in. Uh, this is Spinal Tap, often considered, if not the greatest comedy of all time, in the conversation for being one of the greatest comedies of all time. So before we break all the movies down, I just want to spell them out to you in a row. 1984, This is Spinal Tap. 1986, Stand By Me. 1987, The Princess Bride. 1989, When Harry Met Sally. 1990, Misery. 1992, A Few Good Men. Those are consecutive releases. So with the exception of the first one I mentioned, The Sure Thing, every single one of these movies is beloved or you know, beholden as like a great film. Inarguably, these are all great movies. You can, your mileage may vary movie to movie. Some people might not be into every single one of them, but every one of these movies has a lasting impact. They are all still talked about as pillars of their respective genres. And they were all incredibly commercially successful and critically successful. Every single one of them starting, like I said, with spinal tap, one of the funniest movies ever. We've all seen spinal tap. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's fucking hilarious. Like there's, there's no great way to sell this apart from if you haven't seen Spinal Tap, you 100% need to watch Spinal Tap right now. It is a blueprint for how to correctly do an ensemble comedy that doesn't feel scripted. Like, it is a scripted film to the extent that there is an idea about a heavy metal band that is at the wane of their careers. They're kind of like a joke, and they are dealing with the pressures of mounting a tour to still be successful and relevant in the 80s where their style of music has become kind of passe that is the general gist of what spinal tap is but the the actual comedy of the movie is so much more than just the theory of what this is this movie is endlessly quotable i'm not going to go through all of them right now but if you've ever heard the phrase turned up to 11 this one goes to 11 that's from spinal tap if you've ever heard talk about like uh, jokes about band members constantly being needing to be replaced, specifically drummers. That's from Spinal Tap. <laughs> yeah. Like the <laughs> the bullshit and the hijinks that come out of this movie are so timeless and wonderful that it's a miracle to me that like every movie just didn't try to be Spinal Tap because a lot did, and a lot of them are spiritually successors to that. But this is what starts that sort of comedy, and it is fucking fantastic. Um, well, just the deadpan of all of it, like while they're doing the interviews, like like a lot of people don't appreciate just like deadpan responses of just the on the on camera interviews yeah, throughout yeah. the whole mockumentary, and it it was it was just it coins the term mockumentary. Yeah, yeah. That's important to also note. Thank yes. you for mentioning that. No, yeah, no problem. But I mean, just and plus they also go through things that were becoming big during concerts, right? Like having like big props on stage. Yeah, and then the, the small and, the, the small and the failure of yeah, them. yeah. The small Stonehenge coming on stage is one of my favorite well, moments. In the movie. I was gonna say there's that one or the guitarist getting trapped in uh, in what, the pod. Yeah, yeah, in the pod, yeah. unable to come out of yeah, prop going wrong. <laughs> this on stage. is basically the entire show because of it. Stuffing, yeah. stuffing cu- like yeah, a cucumber, cucumber into their pants to yeah, look the like they're hung. Yep. and getting yeah, and getting caught at the airport because it's wrapped in, in uh, fucking tinfoil. Tinfoil. <laughs> yeah, or my favorite too is the um, the the course the girl coming into the band or like breaking up the band and kind of like back putting that in there. Yeah, like a Yoko Ono kind of trope yes. of a girl destroying the inner workings of a band. Yeah. Um, all the people in this movie will go on to success in many other things, but uh, the core band, uh, Michael McKean, Christopher Guest, and, uh, oh, why did I just forget his name? Harry Shearer, are the, the band Spinal Tap. All of, anyone who is a comedy person will know all these people from the other things they've done in comedy, specifically Christopher Guest, who would take this idea and make that his progression through 
his types of movies. Like he would go on to make Waiting for Guffman and A Mighty Wind and For Your Consideration, all with the same repertoire of actors, including Michael McKean and Harry Shearer. Like these guys are they reappear across all of these movies. And and they, troop. Yeah, they're yeah, troops. they're like a troop. And they have this whole aesthetic of a mockumentary. Oh, and Best in Show. I totally forgot Best in Show. Yes. Fucking classic. So all of these movies are spiritual successors and descendants of Spinal Tap. And Rob Reiner deserves the credit, at least for his role in this, of not only helping to write it, but also being an excellent conduit through which to tell this story. Because he, he is like the functional narrator of the movie. Like He is doing the interview segments, and he is, he is the one that is following the band through their trials and tribulations through failed album releases through you know all of their concert you know mishaps and he does a really good job of playing a straight man that isn't too straight to also be sort of part of the joke first bloke's gonna be playing at 10 you're on 10 here all the way up all the way up yeah. all the way up you're on 10 on your guitar where can you go from there where i don't know nowhere exactly what we do is if we need that extra push over the cliff you know what we do oh, put it up to 11, 11 exactly one louder. Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to 11. He's an excellent camera for us to view this whole movie through. And he does really good stuff with how he films this movie. Like, takes all of the right choices and, you know, in framing parts of the scenes where things are going on in the background that you might not notice and doing well to stop and talk to other people that are satellite to these things happening. Like when he's back at the party with, uh, with the waiters that are all dressed as mimes, you know, Billy, (laughs) Billy Crystal and Dana Carvey, you know, like them talking about mime is money and all that kind of shit. So they're, he's, he's taking the right moments to get the backstage part of the aspects of this stuff too. you know, talking to road managers and the, the manager of the band, always carrying a cricket pad around, which is a reference to Led Zeppelin's manager, I believe from the seventies. So, this movie is steeped in like a the navy hat too. That's yeah, and the navy hat he's wearing. The the this movie is steeped in all of these weird little points of references to other greater musical things. And it is like it is known for being like a favorite movie of bands of this time and them of them saying like bands like Metallica that were just like, "Yeah, this sucks." Like we this movie is great, but we're all on blast. This movie makes all of us look fucking stupid, and this is how it happens. Like we we have these egos and we have this certain way we carry ourselves, but this movie rips all that down because this is true. Like we're, we're, It's like seeing a portrait into our lives and just having to deal with the joke because it's so accurate and so funny. Like <clears throat> Again, I can't speak enough to how great I think this movie is, so I'll just keep talking past it because there's, there's so much more to cover. So in moving from Spinal Tap, again, classic all-time comedy, we pivot to Stand By Me. Could not be further from Spinal Tap you know, in, in makeup and discussion. Uh, so it's based on a Stephen King story, uh, novella, The Body, uh, about, you know, it's like a, a coming-of-age story of sorts about four kids that find a body of another kid and their, you know, their their journey from being this group of, you know, misfits and kind of acclimating to their small-town you know, ways and the, the bonds that the four of them form through this journey that includes a whole lot of stuff and not just finding a body. I'm not going to take a lot of time to talk about the meat of each one of these movies apart from tel- discussing the Rob Reinerness of it. And Rob Reiner proves himself to be not only effective as a comedy director, but incredibly effective as like a director who's trying to film these things, these subjects sympathetically. Like you enjoy every single one of these characters. They're all 
they're all kids that you've either known from your life or were from your life, you know, like mm-hmm. in a way that you, that you like, that, that, that sticks with you. You know what I mean? Like it's a movie that stays with you even if, even if you don't have, have never experienced seeing an actual dead body. Like the, you know, the trials and tribulations of them also are a thing that, that remains with you even after you've watched it. Yeah. What's amazing too is that he makes even Richard Dreyfus's voice sound plausible because I mean, there's no thing about Richard Dreyfus is always like, you can tell it's Richard Dreyfus, but it's very nasally. It's very nasally. In yeah. this, in this case, you, I couldn't tell. Like it, t- it took me a while, but like it's even with somebody, for example, like uh, even uh, Jerry O'Connor's character, um, just like that jubilant, chubby kid, whatever. That's it, who I was. I'm Jerry O'Connell. <laughs> in this movie, I was Jerry O'Connell. I don't know who I would be then. If I, if I think of it, maybe, maybe I'd be well. You know I think what? we're all Jerry O'Connell. Yeah, we were Jerry O'Connell, or I think maybe, you know, no, I'm not that. Maybe Will Wheaton. Yeah, maybe Will Wheaton. Yeah, so this this movie stars, like, actors that would go on to other things, notably River Phoenix, who does have a career, but it is shortened, unfortunately. But uh, the quartet, you know, Will Wheaton of uh, Wesley Crusher fame on Star Trek The Next Generation, River Phoenix, Corey Feldman, one of the Corys, I don't really need to tell you about any of that. If you know anything about pop culture, you know Corey Feldman. And then Jerry O'Connell, as we mentioned, you know, chubby Jerry O'Connell before he would get old and much more angular and handsome. But um, this movie ride is success. Like it was, uh, it made over $50 million on an $8 million budget. So that's like for 1986, that's incredible. You know what I mean? Uh, Nominated for an Academy Award for Best Adapted Screenplay, did not win. But, you know, that's an Oscar nomination. That's, That's a feather in his cap. And this is like, you know, effectively his second giant picture. And it is, without question... A great movie. Like, do you guys like Sam? I mean, the movie you've both seen. I love yeah. the movie. Yeah, it's it's good. I'm I'm not really a fan of movies that focus around like kid groups. Okay, but like I still liked it. I like Stand by Me because they're well done. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Totally. Um, again, I don't I don't want to spend too much time discussing the specifics of the content of these movies because I think what is impressive about Rob Reiner's career as a director is that each of these movies is different enough in tones that make them feel like different movies without ever feeling like they're not Rob Reiner. Like, he he does an excellent job of making his... applying his trade to, like, what he brings to the movie as being a very a very accurate depictor of character. Like, he, he draws the right beats out of people emotionally and the right you know, strikes the right notes, you know, heading scene to scene in a way that make all of his movies very narratively cohesive and easy to follow and very good. Like, it, it's not it's not an over-the-top kind of style. There isn't a ton of, you know, like, expert editing tricks that make things like, well, with the exception of one movie, not like a whole bunch of stuff that makes, you know, is playing too hard to try to bring emotion out of the, the people and to draw emotion out of the crowd. He does it very naturally. It feels organic. Like, you watch these movies yeah. and you have a draw to them without feeling like you're being manipulated into doing it. And that makes that's what I think is so impressive about this run is that all these movies do that. And his the real the real uh, the relatability to of this movie in particular but I mean with even Princess Bride which comes up next in his in, in that arc is that the Princess Bride despite being in a fancy world and everything the way he uses uh Fred Savage is kind of like the vehicle to start everything up and everything uh I like that. Even Billy Crystal's character with the and the mutton just a little, like just, <laughs> just a little. Yeah, I, I love yeah. that. I love that part of that. It's just, it's just yeah. Uh, Princess Bride, like you mentioned, is next. That is legitimately, I'd say, top 
10 movies all time for me. Like it's a movie I've revisited dozens of times as a child and as an adult. I never get tired of watching those characters and going through that story. I think it's expertly crafted like a, a movie that offers literally something for everyone. That's kind of what the, what, you know, Peter Falk as the grandfather is sort of relaying in the story to Ben, or I'm sorry, Fred Savage, the, the kid who's listening to him tell the story. Like it's it has romance, which the kid is not into. <laughs> it has, but when he gets older, he but when he gets not, older, he might not mind it. So yeah, much. exactly. <laughs> and uh, he, you know, he, you have romance, you have action, you have some suspense, you have a villain that is villainous, you have yes. a hero that is pure. You know, like you have all of the the wonderful fantasy aspects of a story. And while all of this is happening, it is also exceedingly funny. Like as another movie that has so much heart and so much warmth, but never lets that. Never lets that detract it from having a good time and from taking itself too seriously. Like all of these characters are hilarious, you know, from from Wesley having his little quips and being very sarcastic and witty to you know the pompous Wallace Shawn of inconceivable and having you know his whole sequence of never starting land wars in Asia and never you know the whole the wine the wine drinking you know tasting scene and the poison and Andre the Giant who knew yeah. that that guy had any kind of ability to be more than just a wrestler like this movie is so perfect like it is one of the few movies i would ever consider like a perfect movie and i think that's a fair assessment of it he didn't fall inconceivable you keep using the word i don't think it means what you think it means yeah i i, mean, I would agree with that because it, it it touches on as you said everything and still in a fantasy medieval type of you know background and backdrop of it but you don't mind that it's in that type of backdrop because it's that well done. You have to mention, I think the one thing about this movie until I saw it, because I didn't see it till late, or my mid-20s. I was oh, so you didn't see this as a kid? No, I didn't see it as a kid because I thought okay. that, like, as a kid, I thought it was, like, hard past because I wasn't really into, like, fantasy movies. Okay, and, yeah. So the truth of the matter was I was kind of apprehensive about it until I saw it until, and I was just like, wow, okay, this wasn't what I expected at all, and and Rob Reiner made it relatable to it was just it wasn't just a typical like I thought it was going to be like this queens and king I th- I, I didn't know right, what I was thinking yeah, right. you know when I was a kid but either way yeah and, and it is it is partly it partially that like that's but that's what makes the movie work so well is that while it is that it's definitely it's the story of the movie that is so much more compelling than just yeah. the aspects of it and that's what makes it such such a rewatchable movie like there's there's so much to take away from it on rewatching it. So many great lines, so many great scenes, so many great performances. Everybody in this movie is great. Yeah. Carrie Elways, Mandy Patinkin, Wallace Shawn, Andre the Giant, uh, you know Christopher Guest also having a role in this as the the six fingered man. Oh, the six fingered man. Yeah, like yeah. there's so many excellent turns of all of these people feeling like fully realized characters, even though all of them are fictitious and they're all created through a fantasy lens that would make that could make a lot of them ridiculous. And in some ways they are, and that's by by you know by design. by design, yeah. But in a way that still makes all of them believable and incredibly, exceedingly enjoyable. Like I'd never get tired of watching this. I've seen this dozens of times in my own life and in theaters. When they rerun it, I go see it. It's like, good comfort food. It really is. It is. It's one hundred percent comfort food. Like totally. I, I can put this on and know I'm going to be satisfied every yeah. single time I watch it. It makes totally. me feel good. You know, um, it was a. Uh, it wasn't a giant box office success upon release, but its legacy is such that it is it is considered a successful film because it has become so beloved. Like, you know, it 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 was a success. It didn't do poorly. Like it, it I think it made like twice its money, you know, from mm-hmm. what it from what it produced, but it wasn't 
it wasn't until we got a few years away from it that everybody realized just how great it was and why that that movie is such a such a lasting thing because it it continues to be revisited by people of our ages and older and their children and their children's children we can even say now so it's it's a generational film for people of each generation like it will continue to do that too i think of all the movies on this list i think the princess bride will be his lasting legacy film like this will be the one that everybody can return to constantly and i think that's awesome for him um i agree with that uh coming up next then is uh when harry met sally which we don't talk a lot about rom-coms on here lol since we just did that sandra bullock episode but prior to that we did not and if we were to talk about them at length uh the conversation kind of starts and at some point will end with a discussion of when harry met sally celebrating its 30th anniversary this year so 1989 it's an excellent movie like there's again there's no amount of things i can say to the strength of rob reiner character capturer like he does such a great job of having these having his actors live in the spaces that he's creating in a way that they are fully formed like the minute we see them and then we take the journey through this movie you know with uh starring obviously i'm sorry not obviously starring billy crystal and meg ryan who you know this is kind of meg ryan's like calling card into the world of romantic comedies through the 80s and 90s this is like her mm-hmm. her yeah. big tent pole you know prior to like sleepless in seattle because this happens first um she becomes sort of an America's sweetheart. And I think a lot of that hinges on this. Like this is where that starts for her. It's a great career jump off for her in that role. And Billy Crystal is an unlikely romantic comedy star, but he made a bunch of them. Like, you know, and this, I think a credit to him is that he does it, best in this movie like he has like forget paris which is a pretty good romantic i comedy. love that movie i do too i, I love Forget so paris, good but it's it's not it's not the same to me like as Real it doesn't have <laughs> it doesn't have the same memorability i feel like when harry met sally does and i think what makes this movie so great is that it takes place across a whole like a like a portion of these people's lives like it's a 12 year span that this movie takes over but it's only like yeah, an hour and a half long. Cool. Like it's, it's, it's impressive to be able to sustain a likability and a familiarity with these characters across a time where you're jumping ahead constantly. Like mm-hmm. we're, we're taking a whole decade and plus in these people's lives. And it's cool to keep constantly having them interact in a way that is like both real and like relatable and very appreciated. You know, like they, they constantly keep finding ways to come back to each other and interact. And it feels like that's how that would happen between two people with that sort of history. I would it, it, see the thing too about what I what about when Harry met Sally too is even like the way he brings Carrie Fisher and I forgot the gentleman's name, um, her husband. When, when, like the way they even like brought in the secondary characters, Rob Roger does a really good job of getting them involved as her friends, but kind of having their own little story. How I mean, how they met, of course, obviously, but just right their involvement in getting you know harry to a certain place and sally a certain place and you know the of course the, the the scene in the diner and all that stuff but the yes the immortal scene in the diner yeah but which we will probably clip for you right now it's just that all men are sure it never happened to them and most women at one time or another have done it so you do the math you don't think that i can tell a difference no get out of here oh oh Ooh. Are you okay? Oh. Oh, God. Ooh. Oh, God. Oh. 
Oh, yeah, right there. Oh. 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 Oh, God. Oh. Yes. 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 Oh. Yes. Yes. Oh. 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 Oh, God. Oh. I'll have what she's having. Yeah. And uh, with that alone, I just think that even the way he sets up New York, like it, you know, you know, you're in New York, but it's not overdone. Like, it, we, right. Yeah. There which, is a lot. There is a lot to be said about being able to restrain yourself when making a New York quote unquote movie. Exactly. There and we it, go. it never feels like we're, we're being forced. Like the city is not being forced on you in a way that is abrasive. Yeah. It feels like a New York film without New York being the center of this movie, which yeah. is good. Cause like yeah. as much as I, I can uh, let me rephrase this before I say it. As much as I can stand a lot of Woody Allen movies, uh, sometimes like the love letters, the love letters to the city are, yeah. are as such that as not someone who lives there is from there. I guess I can't speak to it directly, but as a person who watches a lot of movies that are set there, I fucking get it. It's New York City, la di da. So yeah. that <laughs> I don't need to fucking talk about it at length, and I don't need to hear about it at length from you as a filmmaker. And Rob Reiner knows that and doesn't make that overwhelming. That's what, and that's exactly the the subtleness of you, like he, even him going to Northwest. Was it Northwestern when they drove down to college? I'm not sure. Either way, uh, isn't it from Chicago? Chicago, yeah, yeah, Chicago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Either way, he sets it up. It's subtle. It's in the background, and that's why I appreciate it. Because like every time they talk about that Delhi, New York, it's like I wouldn't know that people did not tell me a thousand times. What Carnegie or stage? The where that scene took place. I think it's Carnegie. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so too. Um. It also does like a it's a it's weird to think about it now because there's been so many movies that that are this but it is like a it does a lot to focus on the aspect of men and women and friendships like not not necessarily romantic but like the 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 question of whether or not they can exist that way and it's a, it's an interesting question that like a lot of romantic comedies don't address flat out like is there a way that we can coexist without always having to have sex become a thing and I don't know I guess it kind of leaves it at a place where it's sort of like no, but kind of like yes. It's a weird middle ground that the movie kind of hinges on by the time it's all done. But I like the journey. Like I like that the movie isn't immediately yeah, like, oh, we're, we're together and now let's see if we can stay apart. That's what makes the 12-year thing important because it, it takes a full examination of a relationship between a man and a woman in a context that isn't wholly romantic. Like that's, in, that's interesting, you know? Yeah. Um, and also like Roger, you had mentioned uh, his ability to build stories around supporting players like Carrie Fisher is great. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention Bruno Kirby, who is Bruno Kirby, that's who is yeah. a fucking character actor, all-star in all of these movies, like Bruno Kirby. And he plays so well against Billy Crystal, obviously in this movie and like the city slickers movies, Bruno Kirby, my eternal credit to him for being wonderful in Rob Reiner films. Also, he's also in uh, this is spinal tap in a small role. I didn't mention. So I want to get my, my praise in for Bruno Kirby now, sadly no longer with us, but Oh, really? Also, yeah, it's been yeah. A, it's yeah, it's been dead for a while. Oh man, I didn't know that. Yeah, but also an excellent bit player. Two thousand and six. Yeah, wow, an excellent bit player and a guy that deserves some credit in his own right for making the characters feel the the way they do and realize that way. A less attractive uh, uh, Ed Norton kind of look alike. <laughs> that's, that's actually not a terrible assessment. Yeah. Like they could be brothers. Yeah. Like they Ed could Norton's be like his like slubby older yeah. brother. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> God, I'm sad we don't have that movie. I'm sad that doesn't exist because that would be great. All right, so when Harry met Sally, all the feel-goods fucking hard pivot into misery in 1990, also based on a Stephen King novel. Um, 
it would actually i didn't mention that due to uh the success of stand by me rob reiner would form a production company which is castle rock pictures which is directly related to the stephen king universe as that is a setting in which a lot of his stories have taken place including stand by me so that's kind of a neat a neat touch that he had such a uh, a kindred you know feeling and spirit towards the the bulk of that film that he would name a whole production company after it so obviously a good buddy stephen king they like he likes adapting his stuff which leads to 1990s misery oh man what a fucking movie um i'm a huge fan of early king i particularly a huge fan of misery it is my favorite novel of his i love this adaptation i know of in in king circles is mostly well regarded as being one of the best if not the best uh shawshank obviously gets a whole lot of love and that's merited but i think misery in the smallness of it is much more interesting because it is ostensibly two characters the entire time and that is difficult to make work as like a hollywood film you know what i mean but the performances of both of the leads in this movie are so good that it carries the whole bulk of it like kathy bates would win an academy award for this movie 100 percent deserved as she is deranged through the entire movie as annie wilkes who is the super fan super fan of uh james Kahn's paul sheldon who is a novelist and he writes a series of books about a character misery which is the double meaning of the the title obviously misery mm-hmm. being the character of his books misery also being what it is to watch this fucking movie because holy shit is it miserable she she died she just slipped away slipped away slipped away she didn't just slip away you did it uh you guys see misery you got any misery stands in here apart from me uh i've not seen it in, since i was a kid so i was you say it's you saw it as a kid i saw it as a kid fuck well my old brother's well i mean okay this might this might sound strange to you but my old brother made me watch it john Carpenter's it or the thing really nice 19- oh the thing oh my god yeah, the yeah thing. we've and, talked about that before yeah, on yeah. the show yeah, yeah. So uh, you also left me one of those like yeah all right yeah you, yeah and historically you are kind of squeamish to this kind of stuff yeah, yeah. like because there's there isn't a lot of horror presented physically initially it's mostly psychological until it becomes very physical so i think what makes this movie so fucking uh successful at what it's trying to do is the you know whereas prior to this movie rob reiner takes a broader approach to the character building and to getting all the pieces in place to make the story build up and make sense this movie is straight away narrow and claustrophobic and very confined mostly to a room in this woman's house and it's terrifying like that that feeling of isolation and the you know the cast offness of the character and the hopelessness that he's experiencing through this entire movie and you generally don't know if he's going to get away with anything like he's trying to escape the without spoiling it there is a whole sequence where he's pretty confident that he's trying to he's figuring out a way to maybe make it out of this until she find till she tells him that he has not and proves it to him by shattering his fucking foot and good lord is that scene grizzly like even even now yeah. it's kind of hard to watch the hobbling scene because it is so well done this is where i this is where i give him credit as a as a director for the restraint and for editing because it is different in the book i without saying exactly how the book portrays this a bit differently in a more gruesome fashion mm-hmm. i think by dialing it down one notch and leaving it 
still horrifying and frame and moving the camera away from the things that we're seeing, you know, without seeing some of them too long. I think he makes a correct decision as a filmmaker to let some of this be more implied. Like some of the horror needs to be kept to the viewer in their own mind without having to be seen. And that is, that is the, the, the sign of a good filmmaker is when you can use the violence to tell the story and when you can remove the violence to tell right. the story. And by making it less gruesome, but still fucking, fucking gruesome, it, I think it makes that scene work really, really well. Um, yeah, dude, I could talk about Misery for like a whole fucking episode because I think it's fucking great. But because I said I wouldn't, I will continue on. Um, his last movie in this run then, and really effectively kind of the career, uh, is A Few Good Men. Uh, his first movie to be nominated for Academy Award for Best Picture, it did not win. It lost to Unforgiven. Fucking, hey man, you made a great movie, but Unforgiven is Unforgiven. So that's that's kind of a classic in its own right. Yeah. Um, uh, all excellent performances across the board in this movie too. As past listeners may know, I am a huge Tom Cruise fan. It was the first episode of this show. Please check the archives for that too. Uh, this is one of Tom Cruise's, I'd say... But more you know it's a better role for him as an earlier part of his career he has a lot to do he gets a lot a lot of screen time playing against guys like jack nicholson who is fucking fantastic in this movie uh also a lot of good lines a lot of very memorable scenes this is early aaron sorkin so this is you know of west wing and uh uh social network fame like the a newsroom newsroom yes yeah. a guy who would go on to greater success as a writer the american president yep all or these dave i'm sorry yeah. all these yeah. things true like he he this is before Aaron Sorkin becomes kind of overwhelming for me. I don't love most of his work, but I think this movie is very well done. And his screenwriting, his screenwriting hasn't gotten to the point where he's like almost parodying himself. So this is restrained in a way that I appreciate for him. And it's very good. It was also nominated uh, for numerous writing awards. So that's, you know, it's to the strength of to the strength of this that can, you know, to attest to that. Um, I think this movie is excellent. I feel like it's one of those weird nineties movies that, has an audience and has like a lot of people that love it but in general it's kind of i wouldn't say forgotten but it is more of a like an of its time kind of picture you know what i mean so yeah and and one of the underappreciated performances of this movie i think is by kevin pollack because as lieutenant sam weinberg he doesn't say a lot but he is like he's the one who kind of helps tom cruise in the breakthrough of the movie to actually start giving a damn yeah, like like Demi Moore, Demi Moore hits you over the head and like be like, no, you have to care. Yeah, you have to care. And he's just, and Sam is just so like, because I, I watch this movie multiple times a year. I, I I love it. I love Sorkin's work. So, um, every time like the scene where he's just taking his daughter out for a walk just to take a break when she's in the stroller and he's just kind of like, you know, you you kind of have to go for it, dude. You have to put Jess up on the stand and mm. getting that confidence and you know him just being just the good old right-hand man of Tom Cruise the entire way, just being like, well, I don't like it, but I'm your guy, so let's yeah. let's go into it together. I think it's a great performance. I think Kevin Pollack, I'm actually glad you brought him up, because this is much like Bruno Kirby. Kevin Pollack is one of my all-time uh, usage all-stars. This is a, yes. a term that I've given myself. I don't use it, like, a- apply it broadly, but it's the amount of time you see a character on the screen compared to the effectiveness of the character. And Kevin Pollack, nearly across his entire career, is a guy who does not get a ton of screen time, but every time Kevin Pollack is a part of a scene or part of a story, Kevin Pollack is usually, if not the best part of it, close to it. Kevin Pollack makes the most of all of his screen time across every 
nearly every one of his performances. Wayne's World 2 comes to mind, too. Wayne's World 2. Usual suspects. Even movies like She's All That, like, as, as you know, the father in that movie. Like, Kevin Pollack is a wonderful utility player. That is a dude that I would want to have in my back pocket for anything. He's currently yeah. having a great run on The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. He's wonderful on that show. He's wonderful on everything. So props to Kevin Pollack. I'm glad you brought him up because he is A-plus character dude forever and ever and ever. And this movie definitely shows that. And, and just quickly, really too, just to speak to Rob Reiner's uh, ability to direct, he only had Jack Nicholson for, I think, two days, I think it And was. got all of that out and of him. And got all of that out yeah. of him. And got the most memorable, like one of the most memorable scenes yes. ever in a day and a half worth of basically shooting. Mm-hmm. Like, that's hard to do. Like, no, that's, it's not easy. That's threading a needle, right? Yeah. And he does it the first time and just goes, thanks, you're done. You know, yeah. congratulations. 100%. You know? And that like, is... And, and, yeah. that, and not, not a lot of people know that, you know, that Jack Nicholson, um, you know, was only on set for, yeah, I think, it, I think it was two days, maybe three tops, and they got all that performance out of him. And, and that... That's impressive. That's very impressive for a director to get one of the most iconic scenes... In, in recent cinema, maybe in all time, to get that out of them. That just goes to show how underappreciated Rob Reiner truly is. We use words like honor, code, loyalty. We use these words as the backbone of a life spent defending something. You use them as a punchline. I have neither the time nor the inclination to explain myself to a man who rises and sleeps under the blanket of the very freedom that I provide and then questions the manner in which I provide it. I would rather you just said thank you and went on your way. Otherwise, I suggest you pick up a weapon and stand a post. Either way, I don't give a damn what you think you are entitled to. Did you order the code red? I did the job. Did you order the code red? You're goddamn right I did. Yeah, I I mean, I agree. Specifically in this run. Like I said, this is, unfortunately, (laughs) unfortunately, A Few Good Men is kind of where it ends. Uh, He has a very public and pronounced failure with the movie north which comes yes. out which is his next directed film for a for a guy who knows how to do character ensemble pieces and direct children that's something he's proven to be able to do well it's weird that north should be such a failure because it's got all of the pieces like it has a giant cast maybe that's why it's too much cast there's a giant cast of people from the time and you know a child star but it's a really weird movie, like about a, a kid trying to emancipate himself from his parents, and he goes all over the fucking world looking for new ones. There's a lot of weirdness. There's a lot of hijinks. There's like implied child assassination. It's based on a book that maybe this works better in a novel. I don't know. I never read it. I won't lie. But I, I this movie's not good. Like it, it probably gets too much derision for being super terrible. But it's not. It. It's not defensible. Like it's it's very schmaltzy and very treacly and kind of like oh well isn't this sad and you know it's it's weird that he takes such a hard pivot from being exceedingly good at not manipulating his audience into really really trying hard to like pull at heartstrings and make all this shit accessible and relatable and like that's kind of it like he you know he, he makes the american president after that which is fine ghost of mississippi is fine but there's nothing else like i think the closest he would come to making anything that could be considered good like really good is probably the bucket list and that's not until 2007 so and even that is kind of over the top and it's fucking heartstring pulling so yeah i don't know man like it's unfortunate that he should have to fucking pivot so hard into not being as prolific because he slows way down the pace too because mind you all this happens in a decade 84 to 92 you know all these movies come out in that time six movies that are all great 
And that's that's impressive for anybody, let alone, you know, a dude who was best known for being like a, a hippie on a TV show in the 70s. So all the credit in the world to him for making uh, all of these movies so fucking re- rewatchable and so great. It's a shame that I think that legacy is destroyed by the second half of his directorial career because he's it's not it's nowhere near. I don't even have to list it to you. If you want to go look on Wikipedia or something, feel free. But it doesn't even bear mentioning because none of them are good. But however, given that we're not talking about directors that were good that now suck, we're talking about underrated streaks. I think it's important at least to compare these this run of Rob Reiner to something more, you know, more acknowledged like a Steven Spielberg through the 80s or you know quentin tarantino's 90s like directorial epochs of of uh of a sustained level of greatness and i don't think rob reiner is the guy that gets mentioned for that which is why i wanted to draw attention to it because like i said at the top you know in closing my discussion of it every single one of these movies is good like i we can argue how good with anybody but i won't i will not take a conversation to tell me any of these are bad that you don't you might not like them and you might not love them like I love all these movies, but these are all good movies. Like they're again critically successful, commercially successful, and that they all last. At some point in time, if you haven't seen these movies, you've heard of them, and if you have seen them, you either like them or love them. So I don't know. I think it's just an incredible. I think it's an incredible achievement. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing I can say about his second half of his career really is that when he makes appearances as an actor, he's good. Yeah, no, I, I like Rob Reiner, the yeah. actor. Like when he's, uh, you know, Wolf on Wall Street comes to mind. Uh, there's a movie with Matthew Modine um, about divorced parents. Bye Bye Love? Bye Bye Love. <laughs> I've yeah. seen it like a thousand times. And that movie's That awesome. was one of those HBO regular rotation movies yeah, like in the mid 90s. All the time. Yeah. And maybe Craig McDonald's every time. Uh, yeah, they're always fucking McDonald's. Yeah. yeah, that was like their whole thing. Yeah. That movie was just sponsored by McDonald's. Yeah, it, w- it, it like, was. And, and, yeah, like, so I, it's fucking shady that way. But yeah, it's yeah. it's one of those weird it's one of those weird movies you forget until you remember it. And you're like, oh yeah, I remember every fucking thing about that movie. So that's hilarious that you bring that up. Yeah. yeah. But Rob Reiner is good. I, I really enjoy him as uh, Zoe Deschanel's dad on New Girl. He's he's really fun on that. So it's it's cool that he still finds stuff to do. Like it's it's nothing against Rob Reiner the person or the actor or anything. But not to mention, you know, he's the son of Carl Reiner. Absolutely, comedy that, legend yeah. Carl yeah, Reiner, and, and that's a lot to live up to. And he's marked his own, and he created his own thing. Like, yeah, he exactly. could have just done that. He could, you know, he started that way as a comedian, and he could have forged that path for himself and did not like he you know became a director and proved immediately that he was more than adept at doing it like this these movies attest to that you know and some of them are not comedies misery not a fucking comedy fugan men not a fucking comedy so there's you know it's impressive that he could move away from that legacy actually really glad you brought that up i fucking totally forgot Yeah, because i mean carl carl reiner itself is like you know he's one of the forefathers next to uh uh like Mel Brooks, no, Mel Brooks, yeah, Mel Brooks, yeah, like yeah. Sid Caesar, like all these, yeah. all these legends of old kind of guys that we hold yeah, up as pillars. A, yeah, he's on a you know, his yeah. own Mount Mount Mushmore of that, and you know Rob does his own thing, and and it's just it's very well done, and that's you got to give a lot of credit for that. I do. I I think it's I think it's incredibly impressive. Well, we've given you streaks. They were underrated. <laughs> <laughs> streaks. We made you shit your pants. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> With uh, with the quality content, we made you shit your pants. Those yeah, literally with white. If you're wearing white, untidy whites, oh, come on. First of all, if you're smelling your own farts, yeah, it's fucking that one's for you, Roger. Yeah, that's for me, you weirdo. Yeah. Now, yeah. Ben, you might not know this, but Roger, Roger has a constant 
uh, a constant ability to manage to bring up the phrase smelling your own fire. And I did not this week. I did. He not. did not. I did because he didn't. So now, now, now I'm I'm sustaining this bullshit. And, so, that, and that is a underappreciated streak in itself. Yes, we need to start checking. We need to make sure we do it every episode now, so that can be our underrated streak. Rob Reiner does not smell his own farts. Okay. Oh no, Rob Reiner. No, Rob Reiner does. That's. Oh no, Rob, sorry, sorry. I'm not talking about Rob Reiner, the activist who 100% smells his own farts. Yeah. And I agree with some of the shit, but even he's a little too liberal for well, me. Well, yeah, yeah. On Twitter, he smells his own farts the replacements have learned do not smell their own farts because <laughs> Paul Westbrook does not give a fuck and the Pistons um no, no. <laughs> anyway now that we got yeah. that out of the way we can finally close the show uh do all that thing all the things that we ask you to do all the time check us out at sportsradiotroit.com where we have all sorts of great written and audio content including uh Ben and Rogers commentaries for Livonia Stevenson and others yeah. uh, how's that going for you right now it's been it's been a heck of a season for Stevenson. It's been fun. Uh, they suffered a really hard loss last night against St. Mike's, and I say last night, sure, and it'll be heard for a little know, bit. But it, yeah. It'll be on on February eighth. It was a Friday night, but in this context, it was last night. Yeah, uh, but they lost uh, five to four in overtime. But um, we've been very appreciative of. Uh, Livonia Stevenson welcoming welcoming Sports Radio Detroit with hockey and in football. Um, you know, we're very thankful for that. Very thankful for Coach Ron Adams at Wyandotte for really helping us launch SRD Prep, giving us an opportunity to call football games there. Cool, that's cool. And then uh, Plymouth Salem and Father Gabriel Richard. All right, um, expanding we, the brand. Yeah, we we do hockey for those two schools, um, and yeah, it keeps growing, and so everything's going well. And like you said, we have written content on the site on the SRD sidebar, and we still have great. Uh, podcast content leading off with like this show. I mean, this show has always been top notch. So we do what we can, man. And you guys are both on the road show. That's also a yep. staple of us on the weekends here. Check that out. Uh, check out all the shows that we have available to you. There are literally dozens. You'll, you'll hear it in the ad break. We put them in there for you. So I can't sit here and name every single one of them right now. Uh, I will say though, as always, shout out to our friends at Grave Discussions who always show us love and do well to share our shit and are super cool. Um, check out our Halloween franchise episode we did with them. Still, still good. Still pertinent. Uh, and yeah, uh, man, they have a new episode rolling out. It's called "The Last Day of the '90s." I'm gonna have to put up a little. Good uh, so. deal. Shout outs to them as always. And yeah, guys, check us out on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, whatever the hell they're calling it. Uh, leave leave those reviews and rate us, man. I, I, I know everybody asks you for it. We appreciate it. We love yous. Check us out on Google Play, Spotify, any podcatcher, any fucking way you can find it. We're there. Listen to the show, like the show, subscribe to the show, rate the show. We love you. I love you anyway. I'm I'm only doing this because the last time we got really hostile. At the end of the Sandra Bullock episode, we got a little angry, and Roger Roger tried to bully you guys into doing it. I'm taking the oh, soft approach. Yeah, right. I'm taking like... the I'm taking the good cop approach to it. So we love you. Do those things, please. And then if you don't, hey man, we're gonna have Roger fucking bully you again, I guess, because he'll do it. He told me. So, yeah, man. True story. Love you guys listening. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll catch you again with more shit. <laughs>